0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week on the panel, we have Adi Eingar. Hello. Alan Weimar. Hello. And me, Sasha Wolf. I currently have COVID, so if I talk any weird things, then please excuse me for that. So, <laughs> and we have a special <laughs> guest this week, and that is Corey O'Daniel. Cory, why don't you tell people why you're on the show and why you're amazing and why we love you?
1: Amazing? I don't know that I've quite reached amazing, but I, th- I think I'm on the, I'm on the show to talk a little bit about cloud operations and DevOps.
0: Yeah, that's right. We've reached out to you because I mean, you're running like a new company. we found founder of a new company, Maskdriver, which is like doing a lot of in, in that space. But um, I feel like it would be interesting to hear, like, how did you get into cloud operations in, in the first place? Like, what's the story there?
1: Yeah, I mean, I've, I've honestly, like, through my career, I've had quite a quite a path.
2: Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
1: So, my my masters is in information systems. I was originally a healthcare or IT security analyst a long time ago, like 20 20-ish or more years ago. And, you know, I was in data centers at the time. I was doing a little bit of coding it was a lot of policies and procedures. And, and the part of my job I loved the most was definitely not sitting in 50-degree like data centers. It was, it was right in the code. So I moved out to California in 2006 to join a startup. Almost immediately after joining that startup, we had a, a data center that our lease was expiring in. And at the same time, EC2 was being released by AWS. And So my boss came in one day and was like, we're going to get rid of our co-location center and we're going to put all of our, our software in, in the cloud. That doesn't make any sense at all. What are you talking? Like, <laughs> we're not gonna be at a data Center anymore. <laughs> and it just it didn't make any sense to me at the time, but we started using it, it was pretty cool. I made an IAC framework 14 or 15 years ago, and you know, just was really leaning into like I like automating stuff. Like that's what that's what brought me to California and made me join a startup, and just seeing the ability to start automating my infrastructure instead of you know what I was doing before was like purchase orders and racking stuff, right? And so just kind of became obsessed with that, I was in the startup space for for quite a while, and then about six or seven years ago, I started doing a lot of work in Kubernetes and you know, just kind of stumbled backwards into doing large-scale migrations. So I got to work with a couple of very large uh, companies around the globe doing migrations from data centers to Google Cloud, and just really started to see the problem that is DevOps just being everywhere, right? I mean, we got this promise 15, 20 years ago that, that DevOps is going to be simple it was something we could toss on the backs of full stack developers and they could just provision things in the cloud and get back to work. And I mean, what's really happened is you see people just struggle with it. And DevOps has failed. It was a culture, it was a practice. Now it's a role. So we're right back to where we started, right? We have DevOps teams now, which like just flies in the face of the definition. And we really struggled with it at our last job and we decided, you know, we're gonna quit and try to build a product to make this actually effortless and make it where engineers can quickly provision stuff in the cloud and get back to work. And here we are about a year later, and it seems like it's going well. Yeah, no, it's like I can totally relate to that, to be honest. Like when I first got into
0: <laughs> cloud topics, I mean, I'm far younger than, than you are because I mean, 15 years ago, I was at school. <laughs> high school. <laughs> but still, like when I when I started to get into the cloud topics of like Azure or AWS, everything is so confusing. Like, I mean, there's like, it didn't seem to me like there was a clear entry path to learn all the different parts which are involved to actually make your application work in the cloud. And I even tried to get like a certification for Azure back then. And things didn't make sense to me, to be honest. I mean, I also, I've come really very much from like a more high level academia background of like very, math heavy studies so like this whole low level getting a server to run and getting stuff to run on the server something i've I've never really done so a lot of the things which like then aws or azure or whatever try to like propose and say okay you can do this i was like I have no idea what why I would need this, what problem this solves and like how to use that at all, you know? And like all the all the operational knowledge I picked up along the way from colleagues, to be honest. Not not from like a single source or a single book or anything, just while doing this stuff and I still feel there's a big, big, big black
1: area there where I don't know that I don't know things. So Well yeah. here's here's the deep dark secret. That's how every single operations and DevOps engineer feels. Right. I mean, because here's the crazy part, right? Like think about like the average company. So Let's say you have a DevOps team. How many, how many people are on that team? Maybe you have a hundred engineers, maybe you got 10 people on the DevOps team, right? So it's like, okay, you got a hundred engineers. How many microservices do you have? How many data stores do you have? Right. So now you have these 10 people that are serving 100, right? So you have to have 100 personalities you know how to how to deal with, how to work with. You've got 10 microservices, you got four, five, six databases. And then you look at maybe you have one cloud, maybe you're lucky enough to have one cloud, and you're like, okay, we only have to understand 200 AWS services. It's like, and then oh, yeah, we got to understand how to use, you know, Datadog and PagerDuty and the 10 other tools that we have to cobble together to do our job. It's It's a ton of stuff for a small team to try to juggle, right? And you know, the clouds don't make it easier. I mean, when you look at something like AWS, it's like, okay, like, how do you? Like we think we think in intentions a lot, right? Like, oh, I want to do, I need to do pub sub with my app. It's like, okay, well, how do you do that in AWS? Know, there's like 40 ways, right? And it's just like they're aiming for such a low level because they need to solve every single company's use cases. But in reality, we can we can start with some pretty high level abstractions there, like focused around our intentions. I need pub stuff. What is that? Maybe it's just SNS and an SQS topic or SNS topic and an SQS queue, right? does it need to be EventBridge. does it need to be Kinesis. does it need to be MSK. Like maybe when we get there. But can we just start with something simple now and get back to working on our application?
0: Yeah, yeah I get it totally. That was also always my feeling that like when you look at cloud from a perspective, okay, I, I need just this thing most of most of the time. That you rather find it bucket of building blocks like rather like Lego to be honest and then you like have to figure out like how, how to stick that together to to get what you actually need. And
1: yeah, and that's that's a hard part. Like the stuff that blows up in your face, right? Like so like our local development in the cloud is so disjointed. And even if you're using something like local stack, like it's a great tool. We use it for for local development, it's still a bit disjointed. But I feel like the average developer, let's say you're using Docker Compose or Nix or you're brew installing Postgres, right? So all of a sudden you need Redis one day. So you brew install Redis. You're like, this is great. I've got Redis. I'm back to work locally. Then you get into the cloud and you're like, ah, I need Redis. Whoops. Like we shipped that to prod. Nobody deployed a Redis, right? So now you deploy a Redis and it still doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? Oh, we didn't open the firewall rules to communicate between these things. Like there's just so many hurdles they can still trip you up if you're not really familiar with like how that, Cloud works, and then it's different from cloud to cloud. So as soon as you start something, we never, we always say, but we never do in cloud operations. Like we say, right tool for the job and software all the time. When we get to the cloud, we ne- we don't use the right tool for the job ever. We use whatever cloud we're bought into, right? Because you know if you're using RDS because it's fantastic, and using EKS because you like it, and then you decide you want to do some ML stuff, and you're like, okay, well let's use SageMaker. It's like why are you using SageMaker? Because we're in AWS and we don't want to learn IAM and firewall rules and all the underlying glue that we need to know so that we can use GCP and use something like AI platform, which might be a better might be a better solution, right? And so there's just so much like small bits that you have to learn on top of the services that you want to use. Yeah, and on top, even if you figure a, a way out to move forward and like maybe
0: figure out how to open the firewall, that might not be best practice, you know, like, okay, now, now it works, but maybe it's uh, open like a barn door and everybody can basically look in, but because you just don't know better, like, and to be honest, I mean, this whole idea of a full-stack developer who we can do everything, we can do the front-end, the back-end, and the infrastructure story, it's just, it's utopic. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not going to well, happen. I mean, I think, I mean, I'd, I'd be curious who your thoughts are on this, but, like, I feel like even the idea of the full-stack developer has kind of failed. Like, it made sense when we had LAMP stacks, right? Like, yeah, yeah, 15 years ago, I'm writing PHP, I just toss it up on this on PHP host and it just magically works. But, like, nowadays, the customers demand the resiliency and the snappiness and the responsiveness of Fang from every single startup today, Like, right? You, you can't have a product that performs poorly, right? And so we see this now. It's like you don't really see... You see people called full-stack developers, but you're starting to see a real rift, right? I mean, I know people fight against the idea of React and, and some of these front-end frameworks, but that's what you're seeing successful companies do to move quickly is like there, there is separate responsibilities there are people that are really good at designing ui and and interactions and there's people that are really good at designing back end apis and interacting with data source and like you're seeing that start to happen there and it's like that that has to happen at the at the devops level as well but it just creates more hurdles for us so it's kind of it's kind of a bit of a catch 22
0: yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that full-stack has failed, but I think the expectations around full-stack are completely out of out of proportions. Like, I think when people hear full-stack full or, or, or talk about a full-stack developer, they think, okay, then I don't need to hire a React developer, I don't need to hire a backend developer, I don't need to hire an infrastructure engineer. This guy or this, this person, <laughs> this guy can, can do it all, you know? But of course, like you just have a subset of things, and I... Would, my, uh, would describe myself to a certain degree as a full stack developer because I, I know each of these areas to a certain degree. Backend is where I'm most familiar with. But for example, if I would start in a very small startup, only developer, I, I could do it all. It would not be great, but it would work, you know? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, but I mean, you, you don't, yeah. of, of course, don't get the same level of quality and polish as if you, I don't know, have if, if, if five, per backend developers, five frontend developers and a yeah. platform team doing all of that. Of course they can deliver way more polish and way arguably probably way secure products, depending on what yeah. you do.
1: That resonates with me. When we first when we first released Mass Driver in December and then we kinda put it back into a private beta, the entire front end was built by three ops people. And let me tell you, it was the <laughs> ugliest it was the ugliest thing you've ever seen and it was pretty it was pretty janky but now that we have a front end team it's like it's beautiful and it like works well and I'm just like this is fantastic we should have hired people to do this a year ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean you you get what you pay for so to speak, right? And, and, <laughs> yeah, Right? And people pay, expect like a magic package from a full stack developer. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. What are you hiring, Adi? Are you hiring just Elixir developers or are you hiring full stack developers?
3: Full stack. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, we have We have outsourced a design team, though. And we do, before taking on a feature, I do attempt to replicate their designs as close as possible before handing the work to full stack engineers so we're doing okay at this stage but eventually we will need i mean you guys what you guys are saying is true right like you hit a point after which the design and the ui starts becoming a lot more important than it is at least for us at this point so yeah we will be reactive to feedback
0: yeah (laughs) yeah i think that makes a lot of sense it's also i mean you might not need a full-blown design team or like front-end team to build like an admin interface. You know, like (laughs) that can be a bit Yankee. That's okay. Like if it's used by, I don't know, like 20 people in-house, but if you want to really have like, I don't know, that product page, that first impression, that, that better
1: be polished, right? So
0: yeah. Like I said, you get what you pay for.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, like, and when it comes to ops side, right? So, like, like going back to like just the vast amount of services, like it, it's very much the same, right? So, like, so now you're talking about like the foundation for all, how all of your applications store data and communicate, and you have this, you know, this full stack DevOps person, right? Not, not truly full stack. I'm air quoting. I don't know if this is going to be a video or not, but like, give this one person who's in charge of all of your ops stuff, and it's just like, okay, they're 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 not. They probably don't have deep expertise in everything they're probably just doing enough to get going right now that's that's the basis for your application and i feel like that's why we end up in with the security breaches that we have nowadays and with you know just like the deep painful technical debt of refactoring sometimes because it's like people people back themselves into corners a lot because they're just trying to get something out the door right
0: yeah and now i also think that, that whole story there's why for example platforms like heroku were so successful and still are so successful because they, they have this very opinionated approach to like, okay, you can run your software with us, but you have to basically fit it inside of these constraints, right? And yeah. That can work well at the beginning, but it can be a pain to get away from from those platforms too. Like I, I remember when I my previous company we were hosting at Heroku, and it got like also expensive really really quickly because we were doing multiple services. And then then, then things get expensive quickly. Like we, we actually wanted like a like a quarter dyno, that that would have been perfect, but <laughs> well, you can't get that. <laughs> you have to get the full dyno, and that's gonna add up if you have like I don't know twenty thirty services, and then the whole. I mean, then then there's this whole shebang of like cloud lock-in. I mean, usually people use that term in the context of AWS or GCP, but you can arguably also apply it to platforms like Heroku or, or other oh. where you basically are locked in into their way of doing things and it gets really, really, really expensive to move away.
1: So Yeah, yeah. I think that's us right yeah. now. Trying to move off of something like Heroku,
3: we are on Heroku. We do containers, thankfully, so it's it's not as expensive to move away to AWS. But it's I think exactly it was very easy to set things up early on. We have close to twenty five microservices right now, so managing them, the cost of spinning a new one up, both in terms of time and money, it's 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 very high. So, yeah, we're again, we're again moving to AWS and uh, have a engineer dedicated to doing that and we've been at it for weeks. It will take us a few more weeks.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, and like that migration is... I, I mean, you're there, though, right? You, you've seen the point where you're like, I have to move. And and where it gets really painful is when people stay too long and they start to warp their software around their infrastructure, right? It's like, it's a three-tiered web architecture is effectively that you're getting with Roku. And I've seen people like bend that to their will and just do some of the strangest stuff and like that's where it gets hard because now when you start mapping it onto these smaller primitives of the cloud it's like there's there's like you just got weird stuff in your software now right you're shifting you can't do something in, in, in heroku so you shift that complexity up into your app and now as a part of your migration you either bring that weird debt with you or you have to refactor like while you're while you're going right which you know, if you're in a container, it would be great to just move it over. But now, if you're bringing over some weird debt that you've, that you've built around your pass, like that's just not a great place to be, right? I mean, but passes are fantastic. I mean, to be able to get something up and in the cloud in you know a matter of minutes is great. It's just you know they they are all built for a very specific use case. And you know the thing that kind of sucks today is, is like there's, there isn't a great middle ground, and that's you know kind of why we started building mass drivers. Like you have passes on one end, and then on the other end you have figure it out yourself and try to hire somebody to help you. And like, that's, there's not enough people to hire to help you. And honestly, like people don't really want to do the work anymore. There's hundreds of operations roles sitting open month after month. There's definitely not enough operations people in the world. And what inevitably happens is you start taking one of your product engineers and you say, Hey, can you go learn how to do this stuff? Right. And now you're not building products. Right. It's not a great place to end up, but I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how we make more operations engineers. I think they only come from two places: data centers and spite. A, yeah. Sorry, yeah. Spite. Spite's a deep inside joke over here. <laughs> <laughs> no but I mean so like where where it comes from is that product engineer right that gets pulled off and starts doing devops and they get frustrated like they this happened happened them two or three jobs in a row like that's literally how I got into it was like how I really fell back into the kubernetes side it was like I started doing this a lot at my job while I was trying to write software and I was just like I'm just going to go do this somebody needs to do this and I always get pulled off of what I'm doing to do it. And like, I want to focus and become an expert here. But that's the spite That's the spite joke. Not a good joke.
3: I relate to that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got my, I think, CKA certification in 2018. And that's how I got it. Just to help us move to Kubernetes. Did it for a couple of months. Forgot most of it. Because I, I don't I have to use it after that. So, yeah, it's so related to that. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. It's also that the space moves quickly right like even if you have a certificate and don't work in that area things might be outdated a few years down the line they are <laughs> so yeah, yeah. But, I, but i think it's interesting that, that what we got to kubernetes because i mean kubernetes is also this kind of technology which i think did a lot of promises with like okay now now finally we have the abstraction to, to make running software in the cloud easy and simple and straightforward and if you push that to ex- to the extreme, you, you get, I guess, something which I've, I've seen a few times where people then run everything in Kubernetes, like everything, also your Postgres or your Cassandra or <laughs> your Kafka. And then again, well, suddenly the operational complexity increases exponentially and you only don't need to manage your elixir application inside of kubernetes which also i mean there if you want for example to use um, hot code upgrades because you do have certain guarantees around ephemeral state kubernetes is actually fighting you there a little bit like it's not easy to do that inside of kubernetes at least the far as far I know. and the same thing now okay now i don't only really need to manage my elixir app inside of kubernetes now i need to manage this java app over there or this Whatever app over there. And it's giving me weird monitoring things and things break and they don't understand what's happening. And <laughs> I mean, I've, I've been there and it's painful. And QNIT is also not like the, the holy grail of operations solving all of that. But now now people, I've, I've seen people pour a lot of the complexity basically into Kubernetes and like installing custom operators or even writing them themselves, which I guess also fits your story, Corey, right? I mean, you, you have this Elixir library called Bonnie, which is literally for that, creating custom uh, uh, operators, Kubernetes operators in yeah. Elixir. So I would actually be and, interested and to was, hear the story there.
1: But of how that came to be? that, how how that, that, came, that to came to be, from yeah. Sp- so much of what I do comes out of spite. That, that is, I was working. I mean, it was one of those. I, things sir,
4: where... was, I'm wondering if can we actually talk about what an operator is? Because I think two people, two is, people don't know, and also I don't exactly, I'm not exactly clear what an operator actually is. It's like a custom, yep, like makes sense, script yeah, script so... or something, or, or like is this similar to Helm, where you have like a thing we can run it and. Some pop-up or something? I'm still trying to understand what the heck this is.
1: Yeah, so operators allow you to extend Kubernetes in different ways to to effectively add functionality. So like I'd say that probably one of the easiest examples is like let's say that you wanted to let's say you wanted to run Postgres in Kubernetes. I wouldn't want to do that, but let's say you did. Right. So you can spin up a container that has Postgres in it and it's running on Kubernetes in like a deployment, right? Now, there's a lot of stuff for what you need to do to manage Postgres, backups, restores, etc. And you want to start encoding or codifying like some of your operational expertise into like how to run that Postgres instance, right? And so what you can do is you can actually make a primitive, or what's called the custom resource definition, in Kubernetes called a Postgres. You can make it like a real type in Kubernetes, and you can attach essentially other deployments or other runtimes to it that run code that respond to you adding a Postgres, right? And so you can essentially codify a lot of your expertise into you know, a service that's running and say, hey, make me a Postgres and this service will take over and do that for you. So it's like, okay, I know how to set up a Postgres. I know how to set up backups and restores. And I know how to maybe configure the replicas that, that are running behind it, right? So it's really just a way of, it's almost like, it's uh, probably not a great uh, analogy. It's, it's almost like a macro. Like it's, it's this thing I want to do a lot in, inside of this cluster. It's an say so so
4: what's, what's the relation to like a Helm package? Because I think Helm, you could just say, okay, install this thing such as Postgres and it could run everything. Is, is Helm like a way of implementing a type of operator or it is an operator? Well, so I mean,
1: so an operator at the end of the day is effectively two... Th- Two things, really. Probably a little more depending on how, how deep you get into it. So there's there's like the schema, like the custom resource definition, which is based on I think OpenAPI now. So it's essentially it's a schema of like what your YAML object will look like of, of the thing that you're trying to represent, right? So maybe Postgres is just a uh, there's a lot more to it. Probably if you go look at kubedb, but maybe it's just a schema name and uh, the amount of RAM, right? So so bring me up a database. This is the name of the schema. Give me this much RAM, right? Maybe that's the only parameters that go into it. So, on the other side of it, so there's a definition, and then there's a service that you actually write, or sorry, let's call it a, a deployment that you actually write as the operator, like the person that makes the operator that responds to that request coming in. So, it goes, Oh, I see that Alan wants a database called Catalog, and it needs 128 gigs of RAM, right? And so, it will go out and do the work to make an actual deployment and a service configured the way that the operators determined, the actual human operators determined that Postgres should run, right, and it will create the deployment services and all the underlying resources. So essentially, lets you as the user, just think of something as a Postgres with a couple of parameters. But under the hood, there's all this operational complexity that has to happen to make it run effectively and securely and connect all the nodes together. Yeah. So you'll see like there there are Helm charts, like the Prometheus Helm chart will install the Prometheus operator, and then you can just request Prometheuses, right?
3: Yeah. I was going to give an analogy, like Helm is like the package manager, like mix, but like an operator is like custom mix tasks that you can just run at like a one-time for a specific use case. Like I've used a custom operator for like, like simulating failures for like testing an entire cluster that or like, I mean, I don't know if it's a good thing, like running migrations could be one too, it could be an overkill an operator there, but like, yeah, the like custom mix tasks.
1: Yeah. And, and so, I mean, like what, what you can do with the operators is, I mean, you could do almost anything. So there's this there's this project called crossplane i believe i believe it's called crossplane let me make sure i'm saying the right crossplane and yeah it's a series of operators and this is i don't know i don't want to i don't want to give my opinion on it but it's a series of operators that lets you create cloud resources through kubernetes so you can be like i need an s3 bucket kubernetes and kubernetes will go and make you an s3 bucket right which I did a talk on this at the Big Elixir. I thought it was a great idea back then. And I, I that's one of the things I was doing with Bonnie was something similar to cross-plane. But then there's like the whole like chicken and egg. It's like, oh, I just got to make a Kubernetes cluster so I can make an S3 bucket, but, which seems a little odd. But I mean, the nice thing about something like that is now alongside your application, let's say your application needs an S3 bucket and your application needs maybe an SQSQ. In the same manifest that you have your application's deployment, you can say, I need an SQSQ and I need an S3 bucket. And when you apply that to Kubernetes, it'll create your containers, schedule your app, and then it'll actually hit the AWS API and make the resources that you need. So it is pretty useful from like an apps perspective when you're trying to say what your cloud dependencies are.
0: One thing I'd like to add is that uh, from what I've understood, based on the Kubernetes in Action book, is that basically all the parts you see in Kubernetes, like the, when you say, I need a deployment, or when you say, I need a pod, or I need a job, all of those are also then under the by operators implemented by Kubernetes. So like Each, each of those for example when you say i want a replica set then there is an operator responsible of get of taking this definition of replica set and actually mapping that to something you need like pods and then again there's an operator for pods and so on and so forth so it's not like some magic sauce of a land, but it's Literally, the building blocks of how Kubernetes is, is made out to be.
1: Yeah, and it's all layers. It's like if I want a deployment, we'll be like, okay, you're making replica sets. A replica set is like, okay, I'm making pods. Exactly. I think Pods is the next layer down between replica sets, and yeah, so you have like the replica controller. So that's the other side of the of the operator pattern. Is the CRD to define what you're exposing to your user to for them to say what their requirements are, and then on your side, there's what they call the controller, which is effectively a deployment or a staple set that's running, responding to that.
4: So basically um so if that's the case, because what I understand in, in Kubernetes is like if you make a deployment, that will in turn make a replica set, which in turn make a pod. So basically operators can also build upon other operators. Yes, yes. Exactly. That, yeah. That they're all pieces. Okay. That's yeah. Interesting. It's it's operators all the yeah. way down. <laughs> yeah. Oh that's what I understood from what you guys were saying. Like I I had no idea. Like, I always but, heard the term operators, but I never really understood what it was other than yeah, I mean, the example you give me, it's like, okay, but it sounds a like helm. Like, is it are they the same? But not, yeah. not, you gave me the good example.
0: I, like, I can really recommend the book, Kubernetes In Action on that, because it really takes this 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 notion in the beginning, okay, I want to run my software right back like in the cloud, I don't want to care about it, and then, okay, it starts, okay, maybe a pod is a good idea, right? Okay, but now I, I want to do this, but I want to make sure that there's multiple replicas on my pod, right? And that gets, I don't know, uh, scaled or moved across. Okay, so maybe a replica set is a thing, right? And it builds up the story, and has like this, this narrative, and all, at, at every step, the things make sense to a certain degree, until you get to the whole enterprise and access level thing, where I'm almost like, nope, I'm gonna skip
1: this chapter. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, it makes sense in general. Yeah, there's and there's I mean, there's so many things you can do with them too. I mean, there's I mean, there's 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 things that make sense and there's things that don't make don't make sense. But I mean, you know, you can do things like provisioning Postgres, provisioning you know Prometheus. You know, you can create resources in the cloud, and then you can actually even like act on the cluster itself. So like, I made one a while back called ballast that would help you control the preemptible nodes in a gke cluster so it's like i mean you you really have a lot of power of like what's actually happening in this thing because it's just it's just your code running right at the end of the day so it's just your code responding to you know data getting posted to this kubernetes cluster and do whatever you want there so you can even resize the nodes i mean i've written them before to like force evictions of applications so like making sure like let's say you have an app <laughs> so this is actually funny so let's say you've migrated from heroku and you have a memory link that's been in your app forever and you never noticed it because your dinos restart every 24 hours right <laughs> so i actually had to make an operator once that literally just restarted the apps like <laughs> restarted a bunch of heroku apps that we moved over to restart them every 24 hours so it's an operator that would literally just like go and Pick off all these applications that new came from Veroc. We just restarted because we built on top of this weird thing where the app starts every three, 24 hours, and so it didn't matter that we had a memory leak. Yeah, weird stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I,
0: I know that story. Like we currently, at my current job, we have like this c- CMS we also want to get rid of, and that tends to like. It, slow down if it runs too long and <laughs> we're actually like considering to do just that right like get anything it, just kills this thing like every 24 hours because right now it's always like oh the CMS is again slow again and then like one of us goes into the command line and just okay restart it please right <laughs> so yeah I, I totally get that it's like it's all the different paradigms, all the different platforms, all the different options. Nothing or, nothing is magic sauce. You always have trade-offs. And um, if you lose one platform, the, the trade-offs might be worthwhile until a certain point. And then you switch to another platform with just different trade-offs and suddenly things pop up you never noticed before. its I feel it's the story of every growing company, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, I feel like this is a good good spot to say. Okay, you've created a company, right? You founded a company, Corey, which is at least yet again trying to say, okay, we have this new pattern, we have this new idea. We we want to pr- make operations simpler for people. So, what is what is the idea there? Well, how does it differ from, for example, like a platform like Heroku? which people, I guess, are very familiar with.
1: Yeah, so we actually aim to be in in the middle of the spectrum, right? So on on one side, you have the passes, right? They're all built around the single-use case. They're great. They get you on the cloud in minutes, but they're easy to outgrow, and some of them are very difficult to leave. And then on the other side, there's the full cloud, right? And there's all the resources there that you have to figure out how to use yourself. And so what we're trying to do is land squarely in the middle of that. We're trying to make the cloud easier to use in your cloud with higher-level abstractions, right? So instead of coming to MassDriver and thinking like, okay, I got to figure out how to build PubSub on AWS, right? Okay, so I'm looking at SNS topics, SQSQs, Kinesis, MSK, like all this different stuff. In MassDriver, we would just have high-level resources called, you know, a PubSub topic and a subscription, right? These are the terms that we're used to in our applications. And under the hood, it is an SNS topic and SQSQ. So, like aiming for like the terminology of developers And then just mapping that to the appropriate cloud resources and handling all the bits for you. So like we handle secret propagation, IAM policies, and IAM role automation with principle of least privilege. The really nice thing is we have a DAG that you draw out your infrastructure when you're doing this. And so we can see how things are connected. And based on those connections, we can make inferences. So if we see a Docker container connected to Postgres, we open up the port just between the Docker container and that Postgres instance. So you have principle of least privilege at the firewall level, right? You don't have a Swiss cheese firewall. Only the places are open that should be able to communicate with Postgres. But in seeing that connection between the two things, we forward the secrets from Postgres into your container. So you don't have to go figure out how to set up vault or some other secret tool and how to get your secrets into your container securely. So we're really trying to make it a lot easier. But again, it's all in your actual cloud account. So it's not in somebody else's account. You have full control. If you want to start using... Maybe AI platform for GCP or BigQuery, and you don't want to learn how IAM works and all the different bits of GCP works. So you can start using it. You don't have to. You just upload a service account into MassDriver for your GCP account, and you can start drawing GCP infrastructure right alongside your AWS stuff. So you can actually have both of them in the same diagram, see how your services interact, and then replicate that. So maybe you have a staging environment. You want to replicate it to prod. Maybe you have a US-based company, and you want to start deploying in the EU, but you need completely isolated data. You can replicate your infrastructure to the EU and have your entire application completely isolated. So we're starting to do a lot more around making DevOps effortless. We recently released um, automated monitoring and alerting. So... Instead of paying forty bucks a month per developer to have PagerDuty wake you up in the middle of the night, we'll wake you up in the middle of the night for free. <laughs> and what we do is like we, since we have your diagram, and we know your infrastructure. We're starting to do some really interesting stuff. So, let's say we want to wake you up because you are um, you're out of RAM in your Postgres instance, right? Instead of PagerDuty sending you an alert and that taking you into a Datadog dashboard where you can see, okay, traffic fell off and you know the memory went through the roof or whatever, and you're trying to figure out what's going on. Our alerts take you right back to your diagram and show you this is the thing that's broken and here is why, right? So it's out of RAM. You just quickly select you know, higher RAM, scale it up, and then go start to debug, try to figure out what it is. Some of the other things we plan to do around this is like this is a very common scenario. Your application, goes, or your, let's say a piece of infrastructure goes down, Kubernetes cluster, database, whatever it is. Operations gets paged. And then within minutes, the application developers get paged because their applications, like SLOs, start to, to go off off the rails, right? So now application developers are awake trying to figure out what's going on. And they inevitably find out, oh, it's the Kubernetes cluster. And they ping the ops person. Hey, did you did you know the cluster's down? So, yeah, I know the cluster's down. I was paged first, right? So since we have the full DAG, we can actually see the thing that caused the outage and what it took out. And so we're starting to make some modifications to how our alerting works, where we'll wake up the highest thing in the DAG first and say, hey, if Kubernetes cluster's down, that's you, and let's start a post-mortem, right? So we can see that Todd logged on at 12.02, acknowledged the issue, right? Started working on it, resolved it at 12.08, and we never wake up the application developers. There was no need to. There was nothing they could do. It was the Kubernetes cluster that was down, it was resolved. Now in the morning, what will happen is those application developers will get Effectively, the beginning of a post-mortem, your application was down for six minutes. Todd got on at 202 resolved at 208. He increased the number of nodes in the Kubernetes cluster or whatever. And you're welcome. We didn't wake you up for no reason. All right. So we're trying to just provide that better experience while giving you full control over your cloud. Like it's your cloud account at the end of the day. They're your resources. They're your AWS credits. They're your negotiations with the cloud on your pricing. And... It's your data in your own AWS account, right? So your your security, your compliance, your data residency, your data locality. You don't have to worry about your database being stored and somebody else's cloud account.
2: Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching.
4: I'm kind of curious though about like you said. Okay, if I want to have a pub sub, I could just ask for it. But then the question is like, you can use Postgres for pub sub, you can use Redis for pub sub, you can use a lot of different things for pub sub. But the code is really dependent on usually a certain type of pub sub. So you can't really say, "Okay, give me a pub sub. I don't really care what it is." Right. So how do you handle this kind of thing? Because that's that's something that you mentioned, right? Is that you want to be kind of abstract about how you get the pub sub?
1: Yeah. So there's different flavors of stuff, right? So like if you were looking at AWS, you're like, oh, I want an AWS PubSub, right? That's probably going to be happening with SNS topics, S- SQS queues, right? So now if you wanted it in Postgres, like, yeah, you can definitely do PubSub in Postgres, but that's probably more, that's probably not exactly where we're going to be focusing because we're not going to get into configuring your actual database, right? Like we'll provision those resources for you, but we actually try not to actually touch your your code or your actual data. We try to stay hands off there. So we're staying more towards the, the actual cloud resources. So that would be like your configuration and usage of Redis or Postgres versus how you're piecing together different parts of AWS or GCP.
4: Well, I mean, like, I'm just trying to say, like, okay, if I want a database, right, there's different flavors of databases. They're nearly the same, Mm -hmm. right? MySQL, Postgres. So, but you still have to be somewhat specific, right? So you would say,
1: "Oh, yeah." So yeah, is you that? say, I'm
4: just I trying to get like, focus, "Where's the yeah. where's the fine? Yeah, yeah. Where's the fine grain? Like, how fine grain do you need? To, do you have to be in this case in your your system?"
1: Yeah. So you would drag on something like a Postgres, right? So we actually have a couple different flavors of Postgres. So there'll be like, if you're in AWS, we'll have Postgres RDS, and that's just you know typical RDS running you know, some number of replicas, right? But then we also have a Postgres serverless bundle, which actually runs it on Aurora fully serverless. There's a MySQL bundle, right? So we're really trying to zero in on like what your intentions are. Like I want to run MySQL, I want to run it serverless, right? So we don't have an Aurora bundle where you open it up and there's a thousand parameters, right? We try to focus on like what you're trying to do and boil it down to just the things that matter for that use case, right? So, and this is where this is where the complexity kicks in, right? So if you go and try to set up Aurora serverless with Terraform. There are combinations of parameters that just fail. You can't do that with MySQL. Oh, you can't do that with the Postgres serverless. You can't do this with the Postgres serverless if it's configured this way, right? And so our abstraction on top of that like solves a lot of those issues, right? So in the in the Aurora Postgres serverless bundle in Mass Driver, like, we just hide all the fields that you can't use, right? So it's just, like, why even show that to somebody if you're not able to use them? But that, that's what you're presented with when you're using our automation tools today, because they're just showing you the API of the cloud.
4: Yeah, but can you order pizza through your service? Because at Terraform, you can actually order Domino's if you knew that.
1: What? Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a... There's a Domino's provider for, for Terraform. We could make one. Actually, <laughs> you can make one. So we're actually releasing, we're releasing private repos here in the next couple of weeks. And so, like when you go into Mass Driver, you see a number of bundles that we have in there. And those are all our public bundles. So we follow the cloud's reference architectures for everything you see in there. So you see a Postgres or you see some EMR stuff, it's all following AWS's reference architecture for like how you should design that, right? So following the best practice security guidelines there. Um, but we're going to be launching private repositories so companies can do use case specific things like maybe they're just importing legacy infrastructure great like you don't have to rewrite your terraform to import things in the mass driver or maybe you just have something that's very 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 specific to your business that we're never going to do right so i've i've worked at a company before that had to design their own autoscaler for kubernetes and they autoscaled the nodes based on whether or not a machine learning model thought an ad was going to convert Right, because that's what they're trying to do. Like, okay, if a thousand if a thousand ad requests come in at the same time, does it look like they're gonna convert? If so, let's spin up another node to handle these requests. If we don't think they're gonna convert, let's not, right? And like that, that is the work that SREs and like platform engineers should be doing, right, at the end of the day. And what they do today is act as gatekeepers for our engineering teams. And so that's the kind of thing that like I would expect to see somebody put into one of their private repositories is something that's very specific to their business. They can drag it onto a canvas and then connect it to a Kubernetes cluster out of the public repo just as easily as they could connect it to maybe a kubernetes cluster they designed in their private repo
0: it sounds to me like i mean i'm a big fan of domain driven design and it sounds to me like you're trying to figure out this ubiquitous language to speak with developers right they like, said this is like the the, the language and the oh, terms yeah. and the objects you want to talk about and this is like what we agree on and then i mean if you still want to you can of course drill down into the details but at the end of the day <laughs> that's that's arguably probably what like then most developers who are not super into operations are interested in. And Also like the level of abstraction when, when we think back to what I said earlier with me starting in the cloud, which I was like hoping for. But right? like I said, I want to say, I want a Postgres, but just, just give me a Postgres. Oh, for fuck's sake. What, what are all these things? <laughs> and yeah, I think there is, there is some merit to the idea. But I'm yeah. wondering, like, wh- where where do you see your focus down the line? Because I mean, you, you talked a little bit about okay, you can easily create these this graph, this directed acyclic graph, in which basically describes your infrastructure, and you can, for example, also deploy it into production, into staging, and you get parity pretty easily. And then you also talked a bit about operations, and like, okay, now we can help you with like yeah. routing and stuff. And those are like. I mean, they're related, yes, but those are two different perspectives to take on working with a cloud, I guess. Like one is more about the day to day businessy stuff. Okay. Things have to run and something can break. And one is about, okay, now I want to provision something and like a greenfield project and want, want to create something. I want to modify something, but this is those are actions I personally maybe do. I don't know. Like. Few times per year, maybe the, maybe once per month, something like that, right? So, so where, where do yeah. you see the focus down the line? Like, what's what's the what do you think should Mass Driver focus on? Where you think you will go with that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, honestly, the long term goal, and this is where we wanted to get to, but we had to do some stuff first to get there. So, so we saw Mass Driver as the platform for platform engineers, right? So, we want to be the glue that glues all of platform engineering together. Now what we had to do to get there was develop a number of bundles up front so people could get on the cloud quickly, right? Because in reality, what happens is a lot of teams don't have operations uh, partners and they definitely don't have platform engineers, right? They're they're building like your actual platform, not your platform for your, your API, but like the platform engineers for like you know, your own internal platforms for deploying stuff. And so that's that's what we see the product as. It's something for platform engineers. And that's actually where most of our customers are coming today. They have operations engineers that are inundated with debt and requests from an engineering team. They want to offload as much of that stuff as possible now so those engineers are able to take stuff out of our public repository, And in the meantime, they're starting to build up their own internal modules of how they want stuff to work this is what a network looks like to us this is what kubernetes cluster looks like to us and that'll be in their private repository that their own engineers can continue to drag on and our goal is to just really make the platform for platform engineers so they don't have to do this part over and over again from company to company figuring out how to do the ui and make it easy for engineers to deploy stuff so in that like we're just continuing to make as much effortless as possible so like that's why we went into alerting you can expect other things and I, I think if I, there's something i want to talk about but i'm pretty sure my cto would murder me if i if i talked about it <laughs> now but you can expect that most of the things that we have to interact with as operations and engineers around resolving outages is coming to mass driver soon so like the the goal really is you get in here you provision some infrastructure you can figure out what's going on with your infrastructure you can see its attributes you can see alerts your metrics etc and Mass drivers, where you come to provision infrastructure and troubleshoot outages.
0: Okay, fair enough. So, I mean, because I, earlier this picture you painted of like having a different environments, having parity between them, that sounds like a very enterprise perspective to take. And then, of course, we have like a lot of small startup y teams out there where maybe they are free backend engineers yeah. working on this. And I, I'm not 100%
1: sure if that's like the, the, the target audience you're going for. So, well, yeah, I mean, you need parity there too, right? I mean, how many times have you seen staging and prod out of parity, right? And so we, the way we do parity is we do parity based on the resources with independent scale. So you have the same diagram for staging and prod. The scale can be different. And so what's interesting is like you have staging, you have prod. So let's say that you have more serverless stuff than, mm-hmm. than server full things, right? And maybe you're using local stack, but maybe you just get to the point where you want to have ephemeral environments for all of your engineers. You want the same lambdas, you want the same exact SQSQs, SNS topics, everything that you have and staging and prod, you want to have one for each one of your engineers that are working on a serverless product. In MassDriver, you can just hit the, the clone button, and clone those environments up, the scale's independent. They set the scale super low for your ephemeral dev environments, set it high for production. And, you know, I mean, we, we always need parity, right? I mean, that's one of the, the key components of, of 12-factor design. And honestly, we see it fail a lot at the infrastructure level, right? You see resources that are shared between staging and prod. You see teams that just don't have staging. We didn't have time to do it. We were building our app. It ended up being like, this was our staging environment, but it ended up becoming prod because we needed to launch today, right? And we never went back and made a staging environment. So if we can make it in, in easy to keep your staging and production in parity, spin up ephemeral environments as well, but it's just stepping stones. At some point in time, you're gonna need, gonna need to replicate that infrastructure to maybe US East and US West. So you can have disaster recovery or regionally routed traffic to make sure people are getting the fastest response times possible. Or we have a customer that's using the platform today that they have a product in the us it's very data intensive they want it completely isolated when they deploy to the eu and they're designing their it's actually funny they're a huge company they don't have a staging environment either they never had the time to build one they're terrified of making releases today and so the first thing they're building is they're building their staging environment mass driver and then they're immediately replicating it to the eu as a production environment so they can start building out their eu business and then they plan to replicate it back to the U.S. and then migrate their data for their for their U.S. workloads. So it's like I mean, parity is all in our infrastructure is something that we should always be doing. Just we don't always have the time to do it, and you know, a fast paced startup environment.
0: Just because I didn't want to say that, that you don't need parity, but I was mostly yeah. interested in like what I mean, how some of the things you talked about don't really map necessarily to like a small scale startup with like three people working on it. I mean, for ex- I'm just be alerting example where you say, like, okay, first gonna ping the operations people for, for responsible for Postgres and then the app developer. Oh. In a small scale startup, it's probably the same people.
1: <laughs> yeah, so, it is. It is. But do you, do you need that alert that your app's down if you know yeah, that the bus is down? Right, fair like, enough, right, enough. like how many how many times have you gotten like a, just a wave of stuff from PagerDuty where it's just like database is down? You're like, oh, the database is down. Then it's like your ten applications are down. It's like, well, yeah, of course they are. The database is down. Duh. Like, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> or worse, you don't get those notifications. <laughs> And I guess like
0: what what people might also be interested in. So, are you using Elixir in your stack? I mean, we briefly talked about it before we hit record, so I know the answer.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We are actually, and uh, actually, just to go back for a second, I love what you said: domain-driven design for the cloud. That's a that's a great that's a great way of explaining what we're trying to do. But yeah, we're we're a big uh, domain-driven design shop, so we're a big fan of that type of development. Yeah, so we use Elixir for our core API. It's written in Absinthe, uh, or sorry, GraphQL Absinthe. So, almost everything that's exposed to the public is in Elixir and will be that way for the foreseeable future. Our backend, where we actually do all of our provisioning, is written in Go. And that's just because there's just a ton of great libraries there. Like, the, you know, you can just import the, the, the Kubernetes library for, for KubeCuddle. I can import the AWS, GCP, you know, the Terraform libraries. We do a lot of really weird stuff on the backend to make this all work. We've kind of bent Terraform to our will doesn't really work for us anymore just at our scale but yeah so the back end's all in go and elixir and we used to do a lot of gRPC stuff we kind of moved away from that and just gone fully event driven with yeah. with with SNS and SQS stuff
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense to me. So, we, we had like an episode recently when you might not want to use elixir and like one basically what it boils down to is like when, when you have certain requirements which maybe are matched by a different platform more easily. And while I'm personally not that fond of Go as a language, I can totally see why it, why it would maybe make sense to use Go for some of these bits because I mean, Kubernetes is basically written in Go, right? And, and all of those yeah. different parts. So it makes a lot of sense to me.
1: Mm-hmm. You wanted to say something? Well, it makes it really... Yeah, oh, sorry.
4: yeah I wanted to ask uh, what's your opinion of Terraform because like recently I'm, I'm always setting up just a Kubernetes cluster somewhere and it's just kind of AWS is such a pain, right? You have so many options. It just takes forever to do what you want to do. Even though know, You know exactly what you want to do, right? And you always end up kind of missing stuff. So I'm thinking about using Terraform as like a general template saying, okay, I always, pretty basically for every client I ever have, I always want to just set up Kubernetes, set up a Postgres, and then that's usually 99% of the things I want to do. And probably also a bucket on S3. The only thing that's really different is just like setting up, what do you call that, the region, right? So do you yeah. think that Terraform something like this would actually be something that is good or what's you're on Terraform?
1: Yeah, so I mean, so I love to hate Terraform and I hate to love Terraform. I mean, I am a gold medal Terraform Olympics champion. Like, I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's honestly, it's the best thing we have when we're doing IAC ourselves, but it's not it's not great. It's, it's just the best thing we have, right? I mean, 15 years ago, we acted on the APIs directly or we used something like Chef, right? Like, that's the options we have. We can either act on the APIs directly, we can do it in the UI, you know, we can write a script to call the AWS CLI, or we can use something like Terraform. It's, it's the best thing there is. Now, what what I think isn't great about Terraform is like it's just a different mental model than what we're used to right i mean and and that's why we're seeing things like palumi and cdk and we're starting to see the shift back to actually writing code that makes stuff instead of writing configuration that makes stuff that actually scares the hell out of me but but i mean terraform is the best thing that we have and and while like i said you know i said that like we're we've been terraform to our will and almost doesn't work for us we're still using terraform now what happens is is we've modified the hell out of it to make it work for us because it is the best thing that we have for doing ISC. So a lot of the underlying stuff in Mass Driver is is Terraform. So we we write Terraform that follows the reference architectures of the cloud, and then we augment it based on the DAG and your configuration. And so that's that's how we actually provision this stuff. So we essentially dynamically generating this handwritten code and then we execute Terraform to provision the infrastructure. And the reason we do this is because we didn't want to lock people in. We wanted to give people the option, if they were using Mass Driver, to leave. If they it wasn't a good fit for them, so we can actually eject Terraform and Helm code to you if you want to leave the platform. So I think Terraform is a, a great way to provision infrastructure. You know, I mean, there's there's I mean there are other choices, or CDK and Pulumi and whatnot. But the thing that worries me about those are infrastructures already near impossible to test right and as a person who's like i've done tdd my entire life this is something that is infuriating to me about infrastructure you can't do test-driven design with infrastructure you have to put something in the cloud you have to spend money on it and put it out there and just because terraform says that it applied correctly a doesn't mean it did and b doesn't mean it works and c doesn't mean you didn't have an outage right like it just means that at the end of the day it exited zero and there's some stuff in the cloud right so you know if you provision a kubernetes cluster does it it's provision, but does it work the way you intend? You don't know until you put an application on it and see if you can reach your application, right? And so that's that's one of the things that's just a little frustrating about IAC in general is like you have to go and reach for something like KitchenSpec um, and some of these other tools to actually test that it has done the thing you've asked it to do. And then it actually works properly.
0: What is what is kitchen spec? And just for our listeners, if you're not familiar, IAC is infrastructure as code. So <laughs> is like I'm not sure that everybody in the LixiMix audience is familiar with that term. So but
1: I'd no. say hold on, hold on can, can I bike shed or can I bike shed, bike shed or get on a soapbox? I'm just gonna say that it's it's recently infrastructure as code, but honestly, if we can all just like take a step back and look at it, it's infrastructure as config like hcl and terraform it's just a fancy it's fancy JSON at the end of the day like we do yaml like yeah it's just like i always it's oh it's it's code it's like no it's not code and that's the problem like we're like oh i'm writing code all day it's no you're not doing engineering you're configuring plumbing like it would be great if we actually had time to do engineering as ops people but we don't we just configure plumbing all day sorry that's one of my rants (laughs) Um, yeah yeah, so kitchen spec. I mean, that's actually like one of the, one of the reasons we built this. We got in a big argument when we first started working on a project that became mass driver. We got in a huge argument about who was going to have to do the ops. Since like all three of us were ops people and all of us were like, I don't want to do it. Like I want to write software. I don't want to. I don't want to just configure a bunch of garbage in the cloud. Yeah, so kitchen spec. So there's a couple of tools for, or it's called kitchen, yeah. What it does is it lets you write some scripts to actually go and run and validate that like the thing you did actually works. So you can do things like, since this is some of the stuff we do in MassDriver, like if we provision an EKS cluster for you, we actually test that the, the stuff that we provision actually works the way you expect it to work. So... In RCI, we actually provision an EKS cluster and then we'll attach a load balancer and like an NGINX server to it. And then we'll use KitchenSpec to make sure that we can actually access that NGINX server. So it's, it is a cluster. It can schedule work. It can attach load balancers, run an application and route traffic to it. And so KitchenSpec just allows you to kind of automate um, testing of the infrastructure that you've deployed. But, um, you know, again, it's, it's after it's been provisioned though. So it's like you don't have this like nice tight TDD loop that that we would expect as, as engineers.
0: Yeah, 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 I get it. makes sense to me. And I also get completely what you said about like with TDD, if that's something you practice and I also practice TDD a lot, it's very it's really infuriating because I mean, a Terraform deploy is also not something which is done in like five minutes. It can easily take like half an hour or longer, right? So like, oh, oh gosh, yeah. gosh, I hate this so much.
1: <laughs> so I'll tell you what though, I'll tell you what though. I'm glad it does take time because there's some there's some clouds that love eventual consistency, and so like you'll do something and it'll just return immediately. It's like like give me a Kubernetes cluster, and they'll be like, "You got one." And it's like, "No, you accepted <laughs> the request. I don't actually have one yet." So so GCP in particular is one of those clouds where it's like you just see these intermittent weird failures in Terraform and it's like, that's because it responded that everything was cool and it's like, no, it's still making a cluster. It's like, I'd rather wait five minutes for you to like tell me the cluster's actually provisioned than just be like, yeah, I'm going to make one for you in the future at some point. Oh man, eventual consistency.
0: Okay, I would be curious, like where, where do you see mass driver? Go from here because I think you you've recently released released into public availability, right? Like people can just go there and create an account on master Driver. But like, um, it's, what, still, what are like yeah, it's
1: steps? it's still in private ish beta. So so we are waitlisting people just because we have we just we've just taken on a, a bunch of enterprise customers and it's just taken a ton of our attention right now. So um, as we're hiring out, we've we've kind of paused signups right now. So we will let people through the waitlist uh, if they, if they reach out to us and really want in. But we're just trying to not have too much of an influx right now as we're, we're trying to scale up our team. Um, But, you know, I mean, next is, you know, is kind of focusing more on observability in our applications and, and exposing that through mass driver. So, you know, the metrics that we're already doing for the alerting, we're going to be bringing that into the dashboard or into your diagram. So you don't have to go build a dashboard, right? I mean, that's the thing that sucks about dashboards is you got all these things going on in your infrastructure and your application. And you're like, I need to know what's going on in my app. And then you, Try to cobble together a dashboard, right? You're aggregating things, trying to trying to piece stuff together to, to like you're, you're making something to say like, oh, when there's a problem, this thing is going to be the thing that helps me figure it out. It's like, okay, but you're, you've made that before you've ever had a problem. So is it like is it really like it might give you an indication that there's a problem, but you have to still go find why the traffic dropped, right? And so since we have the DAG and we know what your infrastructure is and we're already doing the alerting. Um, we're going to be bringing in the metrics soon. And so when you get an alert, you'll come into the dashboard, you'll be able to see something that's out, and you'll actually be able to see the metrics over your infrastructure in the context that actually matters, your infrastructure diagram, right? So you'll be able to see things like traffic drop off, uh, like on the network or on the subnet that the traffic's dropping off on, right? And that's why it's like getting your application, right? So you can actually... Correlate those metrics to actual infrastructure, so you have a better idea of what's going on. Um, and we have some really cool stuff coming after that, um, but but that's what's that's what's next on the on the horizon.
0: Okay. Do you have any any questions for, for Corey Alan? Because I'm I'm all out of questions for today, I guess.
4: I have a lot about infrastructure because I'm just starting off on a whole new thing, and I'm thinking, like I said, uh, Terraform is probably first up. Because I basically always just say, okay, throw up a Kubernetes cluster. Because once I once I containerize something, I'm I'm ready to go, and then yeah. RDS, and then that's it. And just make sure they talk to each other, and then I'm done. I'm always kind of curious about like like GitOps. You think it's a good idea to say use Terraform set up my my IFC or set up my infrastructure, and then use GitOps to kind of deploy my services. It seems like that's like where things are starting to go with like GitLab and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean I think I think GitOps is a great model. I mean, you gotta get the so I mean if you're if you're doing all of your secrets in, in get to like you have to have a nice like en- encryption scheme there using something like get secret or whatnot, just so you can have like your full change management in a PR. Like the one thing that's really difficult though, I mean kind of going back to what we were talking about with the like, kitchen spec and actually testing your infrastructure is collaborating on infrastructure in Terraform in a PR is I don't know, I mean, to me it's like almost Pointless, right? I mean, like we can look at some Terraform and we can be like, yeah, that says make a Kubernetes cluster. We actually know until we we ship it, right? So, I mean, I, I think it is. I think the catch there is making sure that you have that parity and you have a, like, a, maybe just a scaled down dev environment that you're shipping it to so you can actually verify that it works there before you ship it to your staging or production environment. So, just having that, that place where you can actually have the thing go, where you can do a little bit more than is your Terraform plan successful, right? Other stuff you have to kind of look at when you get there is, Terraform will tell you something's going to work, right? Again, you don't know if it's actually going to serve your application correctly, right? Until you have an application on it. But the other thing is like Terraform be like, yeah, I will make this, I will update this database. And occasionally when you look at the plan, it will say, I'm going to delete this database to update this database, right? So bringing in something like OPA to make sure that you're not um, accidentally destroying the database while you're updating it. Um, There's just plenty of places in Terraform where that crops up, where you're just like, oh. Yeah, well, it's going to it's going to make my database changes for me great apply and then all of a sudden it's like where'd all my data go and it's like oh we look back at the plan it's like i'm going to delete your database and then i'm going to recreate it and so making sure you catch those cuz sometimes it's just sometimes it's just combinations of parameters in terraform that cause a recreate um, some resources recreate if you change the name so like you go and change a naming scheme and it destroys the thing so getting something like opa into your ci cd process just so you can catch things like that before they take out one of your environments. I think it's pretty key there when doing ups with infrastructure.
4: Okay. Yeah. I. I mean. I have just so many questions. I feel like I we're just going to be turning into a whole entire. Let's teach Alan how to do better infrastructure. <laughs> and stuff like that. Uh, let's do it. Yeah. I um, mean, yeah. I can go on and on because I just have so many questions. Like, my, first of all, like you need to understand that most of the people around me are just like, okay, I the the most advanced I'll ever get is a bash script. To them, it's like, man, I'm a god. I wrote a bash script, but the problem with bash scripts is I think everybody knows they're super brittle, right? Once something changes, you know, that's oh yeah. the end of days, right? Oh, so yeah. like i brought actually puppet like this must be over 15 years ago i think already it's been quite some time i brought puppet in and like that already was a huge a uh, huge thing and that was like before aws this was like uh when you call up a company and get a vpc and vpc i was already like top of the line i think at that time yeah. or something Oof. like that
1: so you remember slice host oh that was nice <laughs>
4: Yeah, so then I think i want to get like the next step. So I'm thinking like I'd probably go for Terraform because, like I said, I just keep setting up the same stuff for every client I ever have. So it just seems to make sense. Yeah. And then uh, the next thing is like I've been using Git, GitLab more and more. I quite like it. And it seems like they're also going towards more of a GitOps kind of thing, right? Because like they had like this thing really like where you can like just push buttons and everything just gets installed for you. And now it's like, no, yeah. no, you have to make a repo and then commit. That sounds like GitOps to me, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I haven't used the, the GitLab functionality too much I, I deployed it for a customer a few years back but um i do know that they're moving towards a GitOps model and that's become a more popular thing but i'm not i, I know that they have some like automated like kubernetes integrations i think they like will will provision clusters for you or at least target them for you if you have not provisioned but yeah i'm not i'm not too knowledgeable about what they're doing over there today
4: what do you think is like very very good practice right so if you were to say hey um you want to be setting up infrastructure and your host and your Kubernetes cluster, Like, what would you recommend to people? It sounds like Terraform and maybe some type of GitOps would be what you think you could recommend. Besides, of course, your, your product, right?
1: <laughs> Did you, you saw the cheesy smile showing up on my face. Well, let me suggest Master I mean, honestly, like this this is the catch-22, right? Like, So you have to go and discover how that thing works, right? If, if you've never done it before, right? So it's the first time you're setting up Kubernetes, you have to go figure out how to, how to do a Kubernetes, right? And so the easiest way to do that is probably clicking around in the AWS dashboard, right? I mean, that's that's the harsh reality of the thing. So I'd say like get in there and click around in the AWS dashboard. Like if, if you've already decided like you're going to deploy this thing, like get in there, and learn about it, like deploy it, like deploy it yourself, man, like manually by clicking through. Get a fi- get an idea of what it is, but just know that you're going to tear it down as soon as you're done, right? And like I think that's the key part is like we get something set up in AWS by clicking through, and then we go, okay, it's working. I'm just going to go ahead and deploy to it now. it's like no no that was your discovery phase like that is your tdd loop right like that's you, that's you playing around trying to figure out how it works now tear the thing down and go codify it in terraform or something like that so you can reproduce it and i mean that's honestly what i do with every single new aws service i don't hop over and try to use the api in terraform i go in there and i just i just fumble around like a doofus like clicking on stuff trying to figure out how it works maybe run some scripts locally to like connect to the service and do some things and then once i feel comfortable with it just tear everything down that I just made and I'll go and make it you know reproducible by doing it in some ISC tool
0: is that like a good practice to like make tearing down easier because I mean I'd rather not go to every resource and press delete oh my (laughs) gosh it's
1: it's miserable isn't it yeah so we do that in mass driver for you Uh, since since we since we have the DAG we know what what is or isn't connected to what and so we can like automate that deletion for you and let you know like if you try to delete something we'll actually you know, say like, we won't delete this because there's something critical downstream that we, we need you to go manually delete. and We'll actually show you what that is. But like you have to go delete this thing because like, we're not going to erase an S3 bucket because it has your data in it. So once you erase that S3 bucket, we'll allow you to, you know, delete the rest of the stuff up downstream. So yeah, I mean, inside of AWS, they're getting better about it in some places. So like in the networking, like they'll be like, Hey, like there's a subnet you need to delete first or something like that now, but it used to be brutal. And there's still some places in the AWS console where it's, it's really hard to figure out why you can't delete something. Like, can you please delete? It's like, no, something's using this. It's just like, can you tell me what this, you know, something's using it. You just told me something's using it. Can you please tell me what's, what's really <laughs> using it? Um, can you share that information with me, AWS? Hey, folks,
2: if you love this podcast and would like to support the show or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv premium. Okay, I was hoping for
0: like a, for some magic sauce here. Like, I don't know, like create this no. resource and then you can delete this thing at the end. It's
1: going to delete all of the contained things inside. That, that would be so <laughs> nice, right? You do. You could just loop through every single uh, list resource in the AWS CLI. So like you can use the auto-completion to get all the list, like all of the commands that start with list, run through all of those and then just iterate through that list over and over and over again, calling delete until it works. Like that would only take like 20 minutes to set up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> It'd be a lot of requests, but whatever their problem not yours
4: that is that is true
1: that is true <laughs> AWS I is there's, there's,
4: such a nightmare
1: there's, there's somebody's made a python script somewhere that does that i guarantee it
4: <laughs> i uh i forgot what what i did but i literally was sitting in a room with two reps from aws and what what the, what did i do i, I think i told the story before on here like the one of the aws reps literally laughed in my face like he literally laughed right in my face right at, at the table Like right? i was like what do you what, do you, what the hell are you laughing about man I spent like two weeks on this and you're you think it's funny like I'm just so blown away that like these guys think that you know it's so easy right that to order to set up services and this kind of stuff like so like for your company like this is huge if you can do all this kind of stuff but the fact is like unless you work in AWS all the time either as an employee or as an ops person there's just so much stuff that you will not know unless you're actually doing it like for instance, we were using, uh, which I heard af- after we already did it a few times, which was like, don't use the root account to set up all your services. right? There's just so many things. And then always every time you have a problem you try to talk with them, they always say, "Hey, go check the docs. Here's a link. Go read this. Go read this. Judge you nuts.
0: I mean, there's a reason why people can literally earn big bucks by just saying, hey, I, I know AWS in, in and out and I can help you run stuff there right like i mean <laughs> if, it, if it were easy those those people would not exist which i'm yeah. not sure I, I like that in the context of helping us reduce complexity because at the end of the day that's like kind of the promise of the cloud right reducing complexity and i feel sometimes complexity just moves elsewhere
1: You're, it's always just
0: shifting someplace right <laughs> yeah okay unless you have like one like a bar burning question i would wrap it, wrap it up because we're already over the one hour mark so Corey, if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that?
1: Yeah, Corey at MassDriver.Cloud my email. Feel free to email me. Always happy to talk operations and, and whatnot. I'm Twitter, Corey Daniel and I'm at Corey O'Daniel. LinkedIn, at Corey O'Daniel. If you want to hit me up on LinkedIn, I don't know who does that, but that's a thing. And I mean, yeah, I'm just Corey O'Daniel everywhere. I'm not very creative when it comes to my name. Corey O'Daniel and GitHub, although I'm writing less and less code these days because I'm a CEO now. But yeah, so I've got a GitHub there too. Alright,
0: then I'm going to transition us to Picks, and Alan, is there a Rust book inside of your pick somewhere?
4: Not not today, so oh. I have to say that <laughs> my, my pick today is uh, Basecamp, actually. I just started using it recently, and I'm Of fall in love with it. So I run my own little consulting company, and to kind of keep track on everything, it's just been a pain. We've been trying to use Trello cards for a while, not working out, but now I've been using Basecamp, and it's nice because I can get my clients on board and can easily kind of catch up with them and share stuff. And I've actually been assigning work to my clients recently. It's a lot of fun. Like I say, okay, log into your account, give me this API key. And they actually do it, right? So it's it's been a lot of, uh, been been really good to get, been a really great tool to get everybody, including the clients, on board. All right.
0: My pick for this week. Is are two things. Overcooked Two which is a game I've recently played with some friends, and like you're up for four people, it's a cooperative game, and you need to. Well, cook meals and it gets very chaotic very quickly because the levels are literally designed to make your life hard but you can also chuck things around and you can dash people off a level by accident it's a lot of fun it's, it's definitely like especially in the context of a pandemic still going on maybe not having so much in-person events it's something which you can pretty easily pick up even with people who might not play so much I've also played it with my, my wife and friends who didn't really play before so Overcooked 2 is my, my pick for this week and on the more technical side a book I already mentioned during the episode and I already picked in the past, but I feel it's relevant. It's Kubernetes in action. And they're also working on a second version now. It's an early access from what I know. And it's really, like, it has this narrative of talking, okay, what, what's the problem, basically, that Kubernetes is solving or trying to solve? And like, it goes through different steps. And I, I've i read a bunch of technical books, which some are, can be very, very dry to read and very hard to read. Kubernetes in action is not quite there, like it because it follows this this narrative line, so to speak. It's relatively easy to pick up, and you can also skip over chapters because, like each of the chapters is basically around a specific Kubernetes concept, like pods, replica sets, whatever. So you can say, okay, this thing is just not relevant for me right now. I'm going to skip it. So it's I really I, I learned Kubernetes for this, and I really feel it's it's worth worth uh, worth a read if you are working with Kubernetes and want to learn more about it and want to use it effectively. So those are my two picks for a week,
1: Corey. Do you have any picks how, do, I, do I get one pick or two picks? How many picks you can, do I get? How many do picks, I picks you want? Big.
0: I mean, you can pick five things if you
1: want. <laughs> so I, I know I have one. And, and this one's it's lo-fi and it's analog. Naps. Like N-A-P-S, naps. Take naps, people. One thing I've learned from having a toddler and him going to sleep on the weekend and sleeping two hours in the middle of the day is I was like, I'm really jealous of how often he gets to sleep. And then I started taking naps again. I haven't taken a nap since I was probably like eight. And they are fantastic. I love them. I take them in my office. I got a couch. I take lunch naps now. Like, like take naps. They're fantastic. They reset you. I don't know. Do you, do you guys take naps? Do you take day naps? Like in the middle of the workday? You probably shouldn't Look, ask course. that. If I, of course. Of
4: course. Do you? Really? I, I I live five minutes away from my house, from door to door. So I go there all the time and take a nap. 4 p.m. I'm there. <laughs> so
1: it's fantastic, right? People I, need, I need to take nap, right naps in the middle.
4: Of-
0: <laughs> I, 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 i'm right not there. taking them in the middle of a day but i like to take them on the weekends like my, my daughter is two and she also still takes like naps right like and then i, I often i just lie down with her because
1: why not <laughs> yeah so yeah yeah i can totally relate to that it's like uh, i've got chores to do and i'm like i can either get some some chores done or i can take a nap and i don't know i mean it's just it's i mean particularly with like being in yc now and like i do i do sales all day and i do investor pitches all day, and I still write software. And, you know, just taking like a 30 minute nap in the middle of the day. It's just, just, I mean, it just, it keeps me sane, honestly, like, so naps, 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 naps. Any other pick? Or or is that is that your pick? That is my pick, I think. And also, I don't know, I mean, I haven't been using a, a ton of interesting technology lately, because like I said, I've been doing a you know, it's just, it's just a ton of, a ton of Elixir and, uh, you know, during the day and then, you know, a lot of, a lot of more like business oriented, business oriented stuff. But I mean, I have seen some really cool, I have seen some really cool products coming up lately in and just like our, our YC batch and some, some things I've been exposed to from just different teams. And so there's, uh, are are we interested in things that are like more on like the, on like the analytics and dashboard side, like, can it really be any pick. So there's a there's a sure. product we've been using Anything. called ju- June.so that we June.so that we attach to to segment to just, you know, quickly get analytics for all the stuff that we're pushing in the segment. And it's it's a it's just a really nice tool for not having to think about how to put all your analytics together and build your dashboards. So I'd say it's a pretty awesome tool if if you're collecting a bunch of analytics on how your users use your product.
0: Nice. Is it based in the US? Or right, like because so is it it's something which is also gdpr compliant you know that oh i do not know just i just thought if you know by chance no
1: i don't i'm sorry
0: (laughs) fair enough okay then yeah thank you for being here Corey. it was a lot of fun
1: yeah it was very much fun thanks for having me and i guess
0: then we can call it a day and i can take a nap because i'm really exhausted (laughs) yes fantastic
2: (laughs) okay and
0: tune in next time when we have another episode of elixir mix bye bye